Hi, I'm Amy Blackthorne, and this is Blackthorne Grove. And this is the Blackthorne Grove, a podcast where witchcraft meets with good friends over tea to talk about the nature of magic and community. Today, I'll be talking with Mortellus, a high priestess of the Coven of Leaves out of Rutherford, North Carolina, a Gardnerian coven operating in outer court, training a group who say they're like a bubbling cauldron, sort of slithering their way through Western North Carolina. Additionally, she's a mortician, author, medium, and necromancer. Her book on pagan death rites and rituals uh, through Llewellyn is going to come out in winter of 2020. And hopefully a, an, another project will be announced in the works. Uh, she lives with her husband, her daughter, and two-year-old uh, twins, two chickens, and one really Hello. ridiculous Thank you so dog. Thank for having me. Welcome. It's a to be here. Absolutely. I'm just happy to get to chat with your face. <laughs> yeah, it's um it's it's really exciting to sort of get out there and, and see what everyone's doing with their programs. I'm I'm excited for you for your podcast and for me to be here. It's 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 a blast. I'm just lucky to have other people in my space while everyone's on lockdown, so Anyone who can come and I join in my virtual that's... living room is welcome. <laughs> I, so I was reading recently that it's um, <laughs> it's bad for podcasts to think they're doing their guests a favor, and it's bad for guests to think they're podcast they're doing the podcast a favor because they're creating this synchronicity together, where as a group they create something new and wonderful. and And I love that idea. It is. It's a perfect exactly. way to look at it because neither one of these things so would exist without the other. We're all out there sort of shining a flashlight on what the other person is doing and making our world a little bit bigger through letting them touch for a moment or two. Exactly. By coming together in this liminal space. My- liminal spaces are my favorite thing. Uh, we can we can come and have something fabulous. We can we can have tea with neighbors <laughs> who just happen to be a few speak. hours away. And I do enjoy liminal spaces, of course. With death work, it's it's a big part of my life and what I do. It's it's pretty much like, like yes. in the job description. <laughs> must like liminal spaces. It's everywhere I go is somewhere that <laughs> other people don't want to be or feel is taboo in some way and. It's it's sort of interesting to be this this creature that gets to walk that that badlands between life and death, and especially times like now when there's so much happening and there's so much fear and so much curiosity about what those spaces are because of you know where we are as a country right now and being that that go between feels more like being a psychopomp than it ever has I think. And that is, it's such important work. Uh, as you and I have talked privately, I've, I've known someone for a number of years who does, the, does this work professionally as well. And it's always interesting the things that I hear that I never would have gotten to experience otherwise if I hadn't met this person. You know, whether it's people trying to figure out their, their loved one's wishes or it's, you know, uh, a pagan family 
acknowledging a Christian relative. It's, it's always interesting to see how those things play out in such a heightened state as a, a, as uh, the loss of a loved one's yeah, a funeral. For me, it's been, I mean, I've, I've been working in and out of, of the death industry for a very long time, starting out with, you know, things anyone can do volunteering for hospice and doing that sort of thing. And right now I'm in sort of the last phases of apprenticing. And I, I, not many people know that, but it's one of the few industries left in the world where there's an apprenticeship period. But uh, most of what I've been doing is working um, state level labs as part of my uh, clinics. And um, that's been really interesting because, you know, you see, mostly donor bodies or like indigents or people who are unclaimed. And it's like every single case that comes through is a story and you take something away from every one of those and they become part of you forever. And in some ways it's not the, it's so touching to see the this the sides of life that most people aren't comfortable looking at, and when they get to that that space where it approaches death, our society has such a hard time dealing with it, and they have such a gut reaction to it that it can make it hard to I, I think relate that's really as true. a professional. I've had some funny experiences, um, sort of anecdotally, where it's you know be talking to someone. I I also. <laughs> I, I was an artist long before I was in death care and um, I do face and body painting and special effects makeup. And I was face painting a child at an event, you know, months back. And the mother asked me, well, what do you do when you're not doing this? And I told her I was in uh, death care and funeral services. And uh, she, she got really upset and she took her child away. And she was like, you should have told me that before you, before you face painted my child and I, it had never occurred to me that it was, <laughs> it was <laughs> gross and scary, but here we are. <laughs> it's like, I need a t-shirt. Wow. Like, before I touch you, you should know. I have also touched corpses. <laughs> <laughs> That's a hell of a t-shirt. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness. Um, I can well, hear I your tea. What, what sort of tea are you making today? Of the fact that we would be chatting tonight, that I would make some blackthorn tea. I'm currently brewing the um, the Santa Muerte. Oh, that's so fabulous! I'm I'm such a lemon person that if it's if it's got oh, citrus yeah. in it, it oh, is yes. and right I'm, up in I'm my very face. English it's really fantastic. I'm putting cream in it as we speak, which. Gives it a little bit of a like creamsicle flavor when you when you put it together, which I love. Oh yes, I I love putting cream in that one. There's mm -hmm. enough black tea to hold up so it doesn't curdle the milk. I just I need some cream in my face. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm one of those people who likes a little bit of tea I with my cream. I wish you could see my shelf right now. I <laughs> so. have like um, three teapots and this beautiful, uh, purple thistle Sheffield, uh, teacup that was sent to me by an author friend, Alyssa Maxwell, as she writes mystery novels, which is really fun. And about, oh gosh, I bet there's a hundred types of tea on the shelf. I just sort of obsessively collect them. 
<laughs> yes, I love it. <laughs> I got to enjoy uh, hanging out with another author, uh, Sarah Piper, who writes. It has its own name. Paranormal mysteries, and they're so good. They just grab me by the face. I was, and it's so neat because she's such a tea person. The in her Tarot Academy series, the main character, one of her magical powers is making just the right tea for the right person at the right time, and it's it's very healing. And I just love being able to chat with somebody who takes tea as seriously as I do. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I'm absolutely that way. And I think it's not just about the tea either. It's about the ritual of it. Yes. Right? You know, people get into this habit and I'm definitely not dissing on coffee people. Maybe I am just like a little bit though. <laughs> <laughs> you hit the program button on the coffee pot, you put the coffee and you forget about it till tomorrow. It's just ready. But there's something really industrial about that that doesn't jive with me. Um, getting up, boiling the water, it's choosing the right cup, even if they're all the same. It's picking the right tea for the moment and taking the time for it and stirring it just right. It's, it's all those little actions and rituals that I think add power to your day and to that beverage and to what it brings into your life. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Today I'm having mm -hmm. Persephone. It's a it's a it's a fruity tea, so there's no caffeine in it. But mm -hmm. it's got pomegranate and just a hint of cardamom and apples and uh just a whisper of lemongrass in the background, but it's so vibrant and warm that it's that it makes me think of tomorrow. You know, that the things that you, you're worried about today don't exist tomorrow it's just this this space that exists forever in our minds and it gives us permission to my grandmother used maybe to moderate what we're thinking about there's always the tomorrow there's space in there tomorrow tomorrow will be yesterday's today and that <laughs> we should remember that we have to always live like there <laughs> is no tomorrow while also living like we have forever which I think was her convoluted way of saying we should always be planning while still living in the moment and appreciating now. It's funny you, you mentioned the, the blend of spices in your tea, but I was um, chopping like pounds and pounds of apples earlier, which I was stewing in cardamom and mace, a very forgotten spice that I adore. Love mace. And of course, lots of brandy because that makes everything amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love mace. But I, I, I've, I've always been a canner and like a garden. <laughs> it really does. Put away veggies and fruits and things. But everyone has seemed so unprepared for food shortages during this pandemic. And we've been running a little street level food pantry. So I've been doing a lot of preserving and canning and pickling so I can put things down there. But just sort of putting these apples away and thinking about how... You know, maybe my grandmother would have lived in this very same house, you know, preparing for difficult times during the Depression. There's just sort of a synchronicity to it, I think. Absolutely. I think 
it's not that we've taken it for granted for so long. It's that we've, the stories of our relatives have gotten so far removed. We can't picture it in with a, a modern society, mm-hmm. with a modern take on where things are. My, my grandmother has had the same string of dried green beans hanging from a shelf for, you know, I started, I noticed them 30 years ago, 20 years ago. So God knows how long that they've been there, but they're part of her system. They're, she knows that they're there. (laughs) I think it comes back around to the coffee and tea problem, right? It's not that we have forgotten how to do those things. It's that our lives have gotten so fast that we don't take time for them anymore. And it's, it can be so rewarding to uh, slice apples for the dehydrator or chop green peppers for the freezer. I, I, when I go to the farmer's market, you know, <laughs> somewhere in the future when we're allowed to do those things again, um, it'll be, it, it's so rewarding exactly. to know that I'm saving and something for just, later. I don't know. And, and maybe this is just me being a crazy person, but I'm, I have food insecurity issues from just sort of the way I grew up. And I always have this idea in my mind that not only do I want to have enough, I want to have enough to share and building up a store that can be available for others, I think is, is such an important thing. It really is. I have similar issues and, you know, I, I talk very freely about going to therapy and, you know, being able to connect with another person outside of your friend group and outside of your daily life is really fantastic. But talking to her about this as we were ramping up to the, it getting to the pandemic part was really interesting because I grew up without. So one of the reasons I bought the house that I currently own is the walk-in pantry in the basement because of those food security issues. I wanted to make sure that, everything was okay. And just having it downstairs, even without the idea of food insecurity and and pandemic status has been really healing. I've I've been in this, this house for 15 years and just knowing that it's there has been really important. I don't know how the people in my life would look at it, but I know when I was a little girl, this, this house that um, I inherited from my grandmother. It was a sanctuary for me. It was somewhere that I could run to when things were bad. And she always had this sort of mentality that anyone who showed up at her door was going to get whatever they needed. She was ready for whatever was happening in your life. And I've tried to put that into who I am now and have that kind of sanctuary space for others. You know, if, if you can't give and put out into the world the kind of love you didn't get it's like what are we even doing you know thank you that is it's so important just to get to that point where you're like okay things are bigger than me as a person and it's been hard to communicate that to people during this time so you know if that just means that you're deny, 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 just because you can't deal with the magnitude of your feelings, well, then that's, that's what's happening. But getting to that point where you can be honest with yourself and look at how you're feeling or why you're feeling is, is important. 
Meanwhile, I'm just out in the backyard, like, counting how many rewort plantain are growing wild so I can figure out how many bottles of cough syrup I can make for them. Oh, my goodness, <laughs> yes. There's a, uh, a local park. While the parks are still open, uh, this time last year, it was these, – these plants were the size of a beanbag chair. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, I'm like, yeah, how, mu- how much can this one plant – produce for us so there's an entire stand of it mm-hmm. probably the same uh, square footage as the the floor plan of my house man i am just i'm not in the business of gardening grass <laughs> i have i have regional biodiversity in my yard is what i like to call the like knee-high <laughs> mess out there we, i don't believe in weeds <laughs> we just have like less appreciated plants I love you. That's that's my that's I've I've been hollering about people saying the W word for probably twenty five years, and it's it, oh my it it's never not wrong. I mean, it's, there's the the people who are trying to poison their yards so the dandelions won't grow, and there's there's so many plants that are of benefit to you. I mean, even the you know the the bistort and the borage and you know everything that you've seen in a book and you might not be able to recognize it, like go out into your yard. You, this, this is the perfect time. Exactly. You can't really leave the house. You can't really go. See what plant. Like, figure them out. There's, there's, even if you're, you've never actually looked at a plant, <laughs> there are apps where you can take a picture of it and it'll tell you. Who wants to destroy dandelion? <laughs> They're so delicious. Every bit of it. Every single there part is of the nothing plant. quite like dandelion greens tossed in like a Dijon sort of dressing with its own flowers tossed in. So yummy. Yes. I. Somebody posted pictures of fried mm-hmm. dandelion flowers the other day. <laughs> now I'm looking out in the yard oh, and going, when oh, are we going to bloom here? And then it's like you see somebody just like tearing down things from around their porch and it's like, that's dog fennel. You have a pet. Why would you tear that down? It's keeping, it's keeping fleas out of your house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why? <laughs> so as you can tell, I don't just love dead things. I also super love plants. <laughs> plants are the best. You're having a bad day and you go out and you, you talk to your plants and they don't talk back. It's great. You can just sit there and be for a little while. It is. And it, it's fantastic. Honestly, I've got I think a... that plants are some of the most connected things in this world in terms of sort of that cycle of life and death. I'm always harping about plant necromancy because they live in both the underworld and in the land of the living all at once. They are perpetually a part of that cycle of living and dying and growing and being born and people overlook them we just walk on them all day if there are plants are designed for that that's fine (laughs) i designed a uh i designed a big uh well it's a fire pit and a patio and and everything all in one for a boss maybe 15 years ago air, fire, and water, and I went to a company called Steppables, <laughs> and they, they sell little tiny seedlings in, in flats so you can plant you know, landscaping, and all the plants are designed to, they grow better when they're being walked on, 
So we had all the earth plants over here. We had all the air plants over here. And it was a great space. But we people just, they go through their lives, you know, going from their house to their car to work, back to the car, back to the house without ever really going outside. And it's so depressing to me to think about. We have, um, I don't know, I guess I'm luckier than most. And I certainly understand the privilege that I have to have three acres of land and do a good deal of my work from home, obviously. There are some things I have to go out into the world for, but (laughs) my husband delivers the mail and he only does that on the weekends. So largely we get to get to be here with our trees and our babies and that's wonderful and you know we live in poverty like everyone else in America (laughs) we're not fancy or rich but we live within our means and we live the kind of life that we want to have with what we have and I think that's what matters finding happiness within reason yes what is it that you do when you're you're out running around or you're at home? What is it that you do that makes you feel the most magical? Oh gosh, that's a difficult question. I, I think I think making my morning tea is a big part of that for me, honestly. But if I had to pick any one thing in my life, I would say giving um, a deceased person their first bath in the preparation room because I feel like that's that's their transition from that space of liminality of living to me taking them into the realm of the dead. Incredibly beautiful. Just sort of washing away what was left of the life that they once had and moving them into that new space. I think it's a really special gift that, that I'm given being able to do that for them. Thank you. Having lost a, not a small portion of my loved ones, it is so important. And I really wish I had had the, we'll say fortitude, to engage with the the professionals in their space and, and explain to them how much I appreciated what they do and how they do it. Um, it's funny. The My high priest, his brother-in-law actually cared for my uncle after his death and I didn't find out until probably five years later that he was the professional involved and I was able to I had the emotional distance to thank him for the work that he does it is really hard I think for families and especially I think pagan individuals to connect with their with their funeral service workers because we, we feel this divide, right? Like they, they're sort of like the men in black. We, we <laughs> picture them as this sort of separate species almost. It's funny in small towns like mine, the, the funeral home workers are regarded simultaneously like ministers and Grim Reaper. Like, like you're the angel of, of death come to take their loved one away while simultaneously being treated like a religious leader from some distant viewpoint. And I think people just really aren't comfortable bridging the gap between grief and communication to reach out to someone who feels so different. Absolutely. And being able to do that and it, 
the life when because Rising Sun Maryland is such a tiny blip on the map that the the area that they serve is county wide and it's it actually breaches into other states because if there's so few people and there are even smaller number of funeral mm-hmm. service industry professionals in the area that when people encounter them on the street, when people like, Oh, I remember you did this thing for me and I, I really appreciated it, but it's even, it's even more heartwarming to see when pagans come in and they're expecting to deal with a Christian professional and they're trying to explain and you get to say, Oh honey, I I got you. It's, it's okay. And you can provide that service for them without them ever expecting that they little, would have um, anybody who understood that. Five-pointed star all. that I wear on the lapel of my funeral suit, and I'm constantly getting flack from other industry people about it. What is that? Why would you wear it? What does it mean to you, etc.? But I always try and explain that even even if it meant nothing to me, it's about letting each person across paths paths with know that I'm friendly to them. That that I'm someone who sees them for what they are and can give them those other things that they might ask for or need. It's really, it's really a big part of what this book is about. (laughs) I never ever set out saying I was going to be an author and I wanted to do this, that, and the other thing. But, you know, as I stood in a hotel ranting to an editor about why there isn't a resource I found myself being the one to write it. And I wanted I wanted there to be words on paper somewhere that would help funeral service workers understand the needs of the pagan community, but also give those pagan families the the language that they needed to communicate with those service professionals, the things that they could ask for, what the laws really entail, what was available to them. Would you like to give our listeners the title and intended release stage for your book? Oh, gosh. Well, the the title was just approved, and please forgive me. I, I don't remember the subtitle because I'm a terrible person. But <laughs> <laughs> It's called uh, Do I Have to Wear Black? And it will be out winter of 2020. We don't have a hard release date. Um, the title sort of came from something that someone said to me once in, in a classroom setting. I was advocating for funeral homes to be more neutral and accepting of of othered faith groups and someone was talking about how they went to a Wiccan funeral once and it gave them the willies and just the priestess all garbed in her dark robes was satanic and creepy and I was trying to dispel that idea (laughs) and she uttered the phrase well do I have to wear black to which I thought well everyone wears black to funerals <laughs> I love it. It's not satanic. It's the it's our culture's practice. It's just, Everybody wears black. Exactly. It's just sort of the accepted color. But when everyone else wears black, it's appropriate mourning. But when pagans wear black, it's satanic. And I thought in that moment, that's our divide. And if that's the the gap that we have to bridge, I I want to be there to do that. I cannot wait for people to get their hands on this. The developing of culture is not just 
it's practitioners are becoming there the people are dying and we need to that an aid or their wishes i know a number of friends and i have talked about our fears we exit this life and how our religious identity will be honored or not honored by our family is so important so things like making a death plan and making sure that your family understands your wishes like those things are so incredibly important and i think that your book will give them the opportunity to figure out how to do just those to sort of give you a tidbit from inside the book. I'm a huge advocate of ethical wills, which I talk quite a lot about, which I think are super important for pagan individuals, especially if you haven't been very open in your life about what your beliefs were with other family members. An ethical will is a space where you don't leave people things other than information about yourself. It gives you a space to talk about what being a witch really meant to you or being a heathen or or so on and so forth, what what the structure of your beliefs were, what did you believe about the afterlife, what were your ethics and morality, what were your favorite recipes growing up, and what was something you wish you could have changed. It's a living journal left to your family that explains who you were. You know, we, we go into a future where we know that, that we could die, and our grandchildren and great-grandchildren might know that that you are a witch or a pagan, but what will that word mean to them? You have the opportunity to leave them that context. That's a gift that you can leave behind. That's fantastic. I've never heard of the practice. An ethical I'm will is looking is forward to starting one now. Uh, used within uh, Jewish culture, actually, and I, I just think it's a really beautiful thing, and, and I hope that I can encourage people to bring it into their own death planning. Half of my maternal family is Catholic. The other half is Jewish. So it's been really neat to be able to see how people in the same family have separate religious observances and practices. So I'll be really interested to see how I can add to that. There's definitely a lot of pressure in writing a book like this. We have have so many groups that either don't have good history, take... Let's take uh, Druid groups, for example. So much of their historical practices were wiped out in, in Roman invasions. And scrapping for history is a challenge. And then you look at British traditional Wiccan groups where they do have death practices, but they're, they're oath-bound or secretive. And then groups that don't have anything at all and, and trying to call things together from common practices and historical practices and, and make something new is it's exhilarating and terrifying. I, I fully expect half of the world to go, what is this terrible garbage? And just throw it right down, hit the one star on Amazon <laughs> and go along with their life. We'll see. But I do hope that, <laughs> that they all know that I did it with love. <laughs> Well, I'm definitely buying a box well, of these to hand out to that. strangers. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so hard with our culture trying to figure out where where things are and where things need to be and how do you talk to people? It's such a, a knee jerk, uncomfortable thing for most people. Know 
how to address those groups. For example, we have this this book that we're we're assigned in a class in mortuary school, and it's it's this tiny book. It's thinner than a magazine, and it's supposed to be the customs and funerary practice practices of of groups in America. Every single religion in the United States is supposed to have a funeral service crammed into that book. I'm sure you can imagine how limited it is in scope. <laughs> I'm sure Correct, 90% yes. of them are different. But there's this tiny little footnote, and I, I love this particular <laughs> footnote because it gives me a parameter. I love anything that gives me a parameter to be an argumentative asshole because that's who I am as a person, do you count? <laughs> but it's um, Buddhism, and it notes that <laughs> at the time of writing, there were approximately 30,000 buddhists in america and that in the past they would not have had to have included them but with numbers as great as those they they were forced and then i look i look at current statistics from the 2018 pew center research studies did a survey a religious survey and they estimated that there were 1.5 million self-identifying pagans in the United States of America, and they estimated that that number may very well be double because of the very real stigma attached to naming yourself that. So if we have loosely 3 million pagans in the United States and 30,000 Buddhists, and they must be included, but we are not, (laughs) where is the line? (laughs) Exactly. I mean, the number of people who have at least heard the word Buddhism and the people who swear that they've never heard the word Wicca or paganism or witchcraft, those, it's so few and far between. And yet... My my husband made a funny comment to me once a long time ago, and it kind of stuck with me, but I was commenting about, uh, I was walking through a Walmart, that's a that's a wonderful place to be having cultural ideas about the world. But <laughs> I noticed that there was a rack of t-shirts and they had t-shirts with like namaste on them. And they had Christmas t-shirts and they had Hanukkah t-shirts. This was like a little cultural melting pot of $5 tees at the Walmart here in North Carolina. <laughs> and I, I commented, I was like, why do you never see anything, you know, Happy Yule or Winter Solstice. Why would I? Why would I never see that in the Walmart? And my husband said the most profound thing that I think's ever come out of his mouth: that that the difference between us and them is that those are things you're born into. You are born Jewish. You are born into a Christian family. You are you are born into those cultural ideals. But pagans choose it. How many pagans do you know that are adults today that were born into paganism? Very few. So we represent a rebellion. We are a stepping away from a cultural ideal. We are a group of people who stood up and said, you can say no, actually. And that's dangerous. And I had never, I'd never thought of it that way before. That's... But I thought, you know, he's right. We, that's fantastic. We are something that says you don't have to do it that way anymore. 
It really stuck with me. Oh, yes. Oh, and that yes, permission is so mind-blowing to people. It's not only is it is it shocking for them, but it's also it's very scary because if you can say no, if you can express agency for this part of your life, think of how many other things in their past could they have said no to that they didn't feel empowered to? Like how many cruddy things happened that they didn't like or didn't that weren't okay? Exactly because they didn't feel they had the ability a, to say no. In my life and she. She grew up tough, much like you and I did, and she's sort of finding her way into adulthood. And she was adopted into a, a very fundamentalist family uh, when she was younger. And sort of realizing that she went from one kind of bad to a different kind of bad. And she's been sort of stepping away from those fundamentalist ideals and, and embracing paganism a bit. And that's really scary for her and just sort of watching that from the outside has been I feel like a scientist right with a field journal sort of watching <laughs> <a> terrible <laughs> good, all just hiding behind a plant in the living room <laughs> but just sort of watching the, the fearfulness behind even small things like going into a bookshop and buying a book seems very scary and and those sorts of things and it, it's just sort of interesting to watch what the divide is between sort of these sort of ingrained cultural choices and the idea that you can say no and you, you question autonomy so much in those moments and, and you start thinking about all of the other things that were poured into your head as you were growing up and which ones were wrong and, and suddenly everything is a question and that makes the whole world big and new but also terrifying, I think. <laughs> Yes. Choice and it's, agency. It's weird for me being, you know, I have, I have a 17 year old and I have two year old twins. And obviously, I'm, I'm a high priestess. I run a coven out of my home. We have like a, we have a coven library that we operate for the community. So we have all these materials and trappings of my beliefs around the house all the time. And I'm constantly checking myself, making sure that I'm encouraging the kids to go, go experiment, go go be a part of everything. Don't think that what I do is right just because I'm the one doing it. Go see the world. You know, forge your own beliefs. Mm -hmm. Come back here. An accountant who goes to a Baptist church if you want. Like, just <laughs> live the life that brings you joy and find <laughs> satisfaction and meaning in whatever path your feet wind up on. And I support you in that. And we just have to be so careful that we're not... <sighs> subconsciously doing the same thing that we grew up railing against in that we're pouring some kind of dogma into our children unintentionally. Children are that extension of us. So if we can help make their lives better by giving them the benefit of our okay. experience, why wouldn't I we? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> And it's great when you're an open-minded right. parent right. like that. What, what's left to rebel against? Let's see. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get a traditional haircut. And <laughs> Meanwhile, stay my teenager is like she's a math genius and she wants to be an anesthesiologist, and she's turning into like the opposite of me. Like where I was this 
rebellious rage against the machine type she's very sort of buttoned up (laughs) and that's its own sort of little rebellion right (laughs) and and i love it i love every bit of that she'll be such a better human than i ever was (laughs) oh god that's a horrible question so who's your favorite (laughs) fictional witch can we pick a media that will help (laughs) i know because i i love so many things Television. Oh, gosh. Uh, we'll um, television. television witches. Um, mixed bag. I'm gonna have to go with our necromancer embalmer coroner cute cousin from Sabrina. Yes. Or Mad Madam Mim. <laughs> okay. Because I love her just sheer amount of craziness. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I want to have wizard battles like that. I want I just want to like get super over the top and have a nemesis that I can just have wizard battles with. Do you want Who to be, doesn't? Do you want to be my nemesis, Amy? We can just like <laughs> we can have... That would be so great. <laughs> I think that instead of like sword in the stone battles, we would be doing like uh kill bill style fights. That would be you and I. <laughs> I definitely have the the weaponry for for this epic battle. Hey, I I, me too. I can see this happening. <laughs> me too. <laughs> you'd be all guns, and I would be with like my bow and arrow and throwing knives and stuff. And you'd win because you'd be Harrison Ford needing to use the bathroom, <laughs> <laughs> which is the best backstory ever. <laughs> I love that story. Like they have this whole like choreography worked out for the sword fight and he's like I have diarrhea and he just like shoots the guy (laughs) Harrison Ford is the best he is he just he seems like one of those people where you're never gonna hear some scandalous story about him which is gonna happen tomorrow now because (laughs) because you said it out loud I have him and like Pat Oswalt on some kind of unreasonable pedestal next to Betty White those are my (laughs) Those are my three people that I just sort of implicitly think are, are good eggs. <laughs> and he's so stinking cute. <laughs> I, I just want to pinch him. Uh, every time Pat Oswald turns up as a, a special guest star oh, for an episode of something, it, just the, this little bell goes off my brain just, made out of cuteness. I, just being real for a second, just as someone in death work and as a parent watching him lose his wife and come through it with so much grace and humor and still manage to survive and be a parent and a human being after that. I just, I'm amazed at watching him be a person. Yes. Every single, every single time, you know, I found him on Twitter and I see him in, in my podcasting journeys and it's like, I I just want to give him a puppy. (laughs) Whatever, whatever the universal symbol of you're doing a great job, and you know I, it's like a high five and a and all like, in like one, like a socially Just... distanced high five. Like what? yes, of course. <laughs> like from did, did you see? Did you see Chrissy Teigen on <laughs> the let <letter>. line <laughs> this week? I yes, it. I love it. Okay. Just, re- just remember, if you're gonna, if you're gonna give Pat a high five, you need the the wingspan of a turkey vulture between the two of you. That's <laughs> that's right. Turkey vultures they are, the they're so beautiful. I uh I do a little bit of taxidermy and I'm probably about to tell on myself on a podcast, but 
um, very frequently people will bring me just random roadkill. Like Tara will give this a good end, and it looked sad to me, so they <laughs> just dragged them through. <laughs> and uh, uh, someone tells me we found a crow. I'm like, well, I'm not supposed to have those in the first place, but I'm not going to leave it in the road. So just bring it here and I'll, you know, whatever with it. But it was a black vulture. I'm like, first of all, Mm -hmm. you have a very wrong idea of how big crows are. (laughs) Very wrong. But, oh, I'd never seen one so close. And they're just, they're beautiful, beautiful creatures. Very beautiful. I'd never, never sort of thought about um, the fact that the quills of their feathers are white. And sort of the tips are dusted red, so they just have these flashes of color in their wingspan that you just never think about. Little, little things like that fascinate me. Where I go four-wheeling and take pictures of the, the universe. A very large see them because they As you can tell, that's where our audio cut out with the internet being the way it is up here the last few days. I wanted to make sure that you knew that we were still chatting and we will absolutely have more tell us back on the podcast and you can look for us chatting with her on her podcast soon. Thanks for listening. Remember, we're all trees in the same forest. Nurture each other.